Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Sean Filer. He's the president and CIO of Equinox Partners. We're going to be talking about gold, gold miners, inflation. It's a fascinating discussion and it's coming up after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirers' funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirers' funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Gold had this phenomenal run to 2011, and it was sort of a moribund for a, a, a long period of time after that. And then it's in August last year, it sort of ran up, maybe got its nose a little bit ahead of where it had been in 2011. It seems to have pulled back again, but do you, it sort of surprised me a little bit, given how much money printing we've had in this decade, that it didn't turn up more in gold. Do you have any thoughts on just the underlying gold price? Well, unfortunately, it surprised you and me both. So it's been a long nine months for investors in the gold and silver mining space because we've had from a monetary policy fiscal policy perspective um, more radical policy easier policy more inflation um, all combined with a rebound in the economy in a way that you would have thought would have been very good for gold and silver mining stocks um, and you had the index really peak into summer of last year and then you know many months of sideways to down and then this year through the end of March 30th at its interday lows the GDXJ so the big junior uh, gold mining index was down 20 plus percent for the year and so you know we've been fielding exactly that same question uh, from our clients is how is it that this is negative for gold and very negative for gold and silver mining companies and um you know, I think it's reflective of there still being a pretty um, dominant bear market uh, mentality in the space. It is uh, contrarian. It is uh, still unloved. It's unpopular. And uh, you have a number of the companies, even some of the large intermediate companies trading at big discounts to their uh, NAV at anywhere near today's metal prices. I had, uh, I have quite a few gold miners in my screen and I, I ask myself all the time, why would I go and buy a gold miner when I could buy the underlying directly and sort of take out that operational risk? So I guess that's the fundamental question. Uh, why invest in the miners rather than the, the, the commodity itself? It's a good question. I think um, some of the reasons that people want to own gold, they want to own gold for its its safety, its store value, a lot of those reasons then come into conflict with some of the jurisdictional, political, operating, geological, et cetera, uh, many of them idiosyncratic risks, but risks that you have in a particular gold or silver mining company. And so it's not logical to people to make that step after the metal to the companies. The argument to do it is that you can buy a gold and silver mining company or gold company uh, in this example for $200 an ounce for a highly economic ounce in the ground. Whereas if you go buy that 
you know, today you're paying over $1,800 an ounce. So uh, you can get a lot more leverage um, and you can buy those ounces at very large discounts to their intrinsic value, even after all of the costs and the discounting back of those free cash flows that are associated with actually taking them out of the ground. So that's the argument for, for doing it in the form of uh, a mine. Do you, when you, when you're sort of putting together a portfolio, do you favor uh, established miners that, that are already extracting gold from the ground, or do you include juniors who are um, exploring a prospect? So we own both. Uh, so we don't own companies, you know, sticking holes in the ground looking for gold. That's generally a, a, a difficult, low probability business. Uh, but the economics of a um, of a of a known high grade uh, discovery, um, the business risk associated with exploiting that asset, as compared to the business risk associated with actually uh, operating a marginal mine, are often it's a, the 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 less risky asset is the one that's undeveloped. In the case of uh, of that example, if it's actually a, a much higher grade ore body, a lower cost ore body. Um, so uh, the risk doesn't doesn't run neatly from exploration to production. It's kind of more varied depending upon everything from jurisdiction to, to grade to the nature of the ore body. Well, can you talk through perhaps how you uh, how you find an opportunity, how you go about um, proving it up in the sense of just you know, looking at the company, looking at the management and uh, validating those ideas? Well, it's a, um, it's a lot of legwork. So you want to, um, you need to be competent in terms of your assessment of the technical merits of the underlying assets. And so you need to know, are they, are they viable? Uh, are they sustainable? Is there a, um, technical flaw um, in the mine. And this is something that you face with the undeveloped, not the developed mines. But if you have a company and you have a market cap and you have a strategy of exploiting an asset, but then you find out that there's a fatal flaw, either it's the the metallurgy or the uh, geometry of the ore body or whatever it is, um, it's not typical that management would come out and just raise their hand and say, oops, you know, sorry, our, our company is worth nothing. Uh, we're moving on. Um, instead, um, you tend to, uh, they want to buy another asset. They want to do something else or work around the problem that uh, they fully understand, but the outsiders don't fully understand. And so um, I think there's... Um, a real uh, necessity to do a lot of due diligence um, from a technical perspective. I think where we've really differentiated ourselves has been uh, the due diligence from a, a governance perspective. And so you have in the um, in the space uh, a, a real uh, agency issue uh, between the insiders and the shareholders. Uh, you often have insiders who own uh, very little stock, maybe who are too cynical about the uh, the company they're managing or governing or the industry they're in more generally. I think part of that comes from um, the cyclical nature of the business. Part of that comes from the long bear market we're in. And often their motivation is to, to make the company bigger and then pay themselves more rather than to 
actually build intrinsic value on a per share basis. And those two things aren't often in direct conflict with one another, uh, but they're certainly in tension with one another. And so making sure that the board as much as the C-suite are very aligned with shareholders in terms of their interest is for us is a top priority because it's a, it's a challenging enough business uh, when that partnership is well-structured. And if that partnership is not well-structured, I think over time you're just very poorly positioned to actually generate good returns in the space. Are you only looking at public miners or do you enter into some private partnerships? No, only public. And, you know, the non-negotiated price of these miners today and offer in the stock market is in many cases, really fantastic. I think it's much better than what you would find in any kind of negotiated transaction because it can be irrational, it can be idiosyncratic, it can be, um, and it reflects where we are in the in the in the in the market uh, for these securities, where you're still down two thirds over the last decade uh, in the, and this is not any particular stock. This is in the. Uh, gold and silver junior mining indices. So there's been a lot of money lost and not a lot of analytical resources are being uh, um, uh, dedicated today to the space in a way that would make the pricing of the securities efficient. I wonder if one of the problems is in that 2007, 8, 9 crash, um, because it had been a commodity sort of super cycle before that point, um, I think gold miners were expensive going into that uh, into that crash, and they were um, they were punished through that uh, seven eight nine crash. So if you look back, it's it's been a long time since we've had a very, you know, there's really nothing that compares to that, you know, mega bear. We've had lots of sort of small drawdowns in the time since, but nothing like that really extended period. And so if you're looking at how could I hedge my portfolio, how could I, and you look at the performance of uh, gold miners through that period, you might think, well, that didn't provide a very good hedge. If anything, it was sort of, it just added a little bit more weight to the portfolio and sunk it like a Spanish galleon, you know, in a, do you, do you is that, is that, I mean, what, what, what do you think the prospects are for gold as a sort of hedge to it or gold miners if we go into some other downturn? Uh, so the, the 2020, March, 2020 is a great example, right? So where you had um, the miners, not just, decline with everything else, but decline quickly and more violently than everything else in the spring of last year. So why, why own those as a hedge? And I think the, the answer is um, in the event of a market crash, gold and silver miners are going to go down with everything else, just as they did in 2008 and just as they did in, in the spring of 2020. Um, over a, a longer period of time, the types of policies that we get from either the Fed or um, Congress and the executive uh, in response to these kind of crises has created a very positive backdrop for the metals, uh, gold and silver, the monetary metals in particular. And to the extent that that doesn't sync up with um, global economic growth or stronger global economic growth, you have a real opportunity where the fundamentals underlying the monetary metals diverge with other commodities and certainly diverge with other financial assets. And the companies that are geared into that have a real opportunity to 
compound value at a time where everybody else is struggling. So that's the, the fundamental case. And then as to the short-term trading case, I fully agree. I think your correlations are going to be very high in a crash kind of scenario. Do you have any concerns that you have? Um, you know, the, there are these alternative currencies or alternative sort of hedges to hedges to the market in the form of uh, the cryptocurrencies. Um, does that, I, I just wonder if that has had some impact on the price of gold, although there are more recent phenomena and the, the, the price of gold has sort of struggled since 2011. But do you think that that has any, um, as an alternative to, to gold, or folks, younger folks perhaps looking at Bitcoin or, or some of the cryptos, does that, does that affect the, the behavior of gold going forward? I think so. Um, uh, I think certainly in the last year, I think it's obviously been a factor. Um, I don't so much see uh, gold investors selling um, gold or gold or mining, gold or silver mining stocks to buy uh, uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Um, but I have to imagine there is a population of investors that would otherwise have invested or pay more attention that aren't because they're doing so well with, uh, with crypto. Uh, if you look back over the last couple of years, which has been a bull market, both in gold and gold and silver mining stocks, and certainly a bull market in silver, uh, you've seen net investor inflows into the metals. Uh, if you look at the ETFs as a proxy for flows, um, and so you've seen pretty good demand in what is, in the case of gold, is a pretty large market. So it's a $15 trillion market in the aggregate. But over those same two years, you've seen net outflows cumulatively from gold and silver mining companies. And so uh, while there is, um, I think, demonstrably growing investor interest and investment in gold and silver, the metal, uh, the miners themselves have been... Um, They've performed uh, um, over the last couple of years, uh, but nothing in relationship to what they should have done given the move in the metals. And so I think that's still the big uh, investment opportunity today. I wonder if that's a function of, you know, you, you talked before about the step from owning the physical gold to then owning a miner, which is sort of the, the folks who like the physical gold are concerned about the counterparty risks, say, in in uh in an ETF or something like that. And certainly you've got counterparty risk in the, in the company, but then with the introduction of something like GLD or Fizz or something like that, there was a way for, if you were, if you were interested in the, the tradable version of it, the, um, the financial version of gold, you could express that pretty easily by buying the ETF. And then you don't have the counterparty risk of, or you don't have the operational risk. So does that, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, and it's easier, right? So yeah. now you don't have to know your uh, the required uh, uh, amount of knowledge you need about uh, West African or Latin American politics is zero, right? Because uh, and who wants to who wants to do all of that? And last year, you know, you couldn't really get on a plane. You know, are you you have the expertise to do the uh, the mine site visits to even know the assets? Do you know the people? Uh, I think the industry has a Unfortunately, well-deserved reputation for having some governance issues, and are you are you well positioned to work through all of those? In the case, in um, a response of most investors is no. Uh, 
but I think again, that's also from um, from our perspective, that's the opportunity, right? So here you have you have a sector where you have these really the stars are aligning in terms of the underlying fundamentals, and the valuations are you know eye popping. So instead of paying multiples to NAV or even a premium to NAV, you have you know well-run companies trading at uh, you know five ten billion dollar companies trading at twenty five percent discounts to NAV at current spot prices and a five percent discount rate. And if you go to the you know billion or to half a billion dollar market cap, you've got companies trading at half of NAV uh, using those same metrics. Um, and that's just an enormous amount of of value and value creation potential that the the stock market is expressing a lot of indifference to today. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I I, um, I prefer higher quality companies, and so when I um, when I when they come into my screen, they tend to be they're, they're all pretty good earners. They've got religion when it comes to capital allocation for the most part, which is which is one of the concerns. So I think there's some very interesting prospects. Um, around at the moment. Do you, do you want to talk about individual names? Are you, are you comfortable doing that? Yeah, I mean, so one, one I think that's, you know, is one of the easiest ones to talk about uh, is Endeavor. So this is a $5 billion market cap. Um, it has a long time um, controlling shareholder of Naguib Suarez that has solved a lot of the agency issues that you typically see uh, in even in the intermediate mining space, in gold and silver mining, he's a high teens owner of the company. Uh, they have a demonstrated track record of building an uh, enormous amount of value in West Africa with um, on time, on budget, high performing um, uh, gold mines. And then last year they did two um, really impressive deals. One in uh, in the crisis last spring when everybody else was paralyzed, they bought Semifo, uh, picked up some two high quality assets, and then another at the end of last year, uh, uh, both great deals in the stock traded sideways and then down towards the end of last year. And so despite the size, it's the 10th largest gold miner in the world, um, the market was just radically indifferent to their technical expertise, their ability to consummate transactions in a timely uh, manner at attractive prices when the, their peers were paralyzed. Uh, the governance boxes they've checked, you kind of go through the list. Um, and this is a, a company that is in many ways, you know, playing out the, the Rangold playbook, right? Which, you know, uh, uh, obviously created enough value for, for Bristow to, to merge with Barrick and become CEO. And so, you know, there's, uh, it's just surprising that that exists today, um, but it does. And that's a company that trades at a you know, 25% discount to NAV. Um, speaking of Barrick, you must have cheered when Berkshire put on the, uh, the little position Barrick, even though it seemed to be very short-lived. Do you, do you have any kind of uh, view what happened there? I don't know, but, you know, uh, Warren Buffett has spent his whole career uh, criticizing gold. And so it's... Uh, um, was likely one of the boys, right? Was likely <laughs> it's not that surprising. You know, the real irony there is his, his father, as a congressman, has written, you know, some of the very best pieces ever on, on gold. And I think, um, 
I think Warren Buffett, uh, his his description of gold as antisocial is really interesting <laughs> in that it is it in some ways goes to the heart of uh, what gold is and why it's a monetary metal is that um, because it's not controlled by any one government and it's not in any one geography and because it has this liquidity and scale, uh, the gold price and gold's monetary function is is a market phenomenon rather than um, the result of a committee meeting. And um, I could understand why, you know, Buffett and, and people of his uh, kind of political persuasion would just see that as as antisocial in some way. I I you know, given what's happening to government government spending today, I just think the idea that you uh, you wouldn't want a monetary medal. You wouldn't want something, uh, money that's independent from government just seems to be a non-starter. If there was ever a time when you needed a uh, 2021 seems to be, seems to be that time. So he's talked about it on occasion though. He said, I forget the ex- the year, but in the seventies or the eighties, he said that we, he pointed out that for all of the work and effort that they had put in over a period of say 10 or so years, they had only the Berkshire share price had only just kept up with, the gold price through that period. So he must be cognizant of the fact that it does have these periods where it runs very strongly. But I, I, and I, I, I sort of shake my head at it a little bit because I can, I can, it looks to me like all of the conditions are there for gold to have a very good run. But for some reason, it just seems to, it seems to have not had it. And it's one of the more perplexing things out there. And it could just be, you know, value investing has not had a very good run. Uh, there are alternatives in the form of Bitcoin is, is out there. There, there are alternatives in ETFs. So I just, do, do you have any, do you have any view about what's going on? Is it, I mean, is it, there, there are some conspiracy theories that there's some su- suppression of the gold price by either sort of uh, the exchanges or by government. Do you, do you have any thoughts there? A couple of things. One would be the, you know, some of the, the the very largest institutional investors in the world, namely central banks, have been the principal acquirers of gold over the last decade. And that is uh, in um, sharp contrast to the way they'd behaved prior to 2008. Um, so um, publicly, do they uh, want to talk about why they're acquiring gold? Generally not. Sometimes you see um, some really, so the Central Bank of uh, the Netherlands, um, Hungary, Poland, have put out some really interesting statements as to why they've been acquiring gold. And it has to do with uh, financial stability, systemic risk. It's all the kind of the reasons why individual institutional, any other investor would want to own gold because of its, it's different from um, other financial assets. In particular, it's different from uh, central bank money and uh, debt as money. And uh, they, each of those central banks expressed concern about uh, the current system to some extent, not just in their buying gold, but in uh, the press release they sent out along with those purchases. And then you have the really interesting behavior uh, in the case of, of Germany of their decision to redomicile their gold. So not just 
were owning gold, but the idea that the gold we own, we wanted to actually physically locate it in the country which we, which we govern or in which we're the, uh, uh, the, the central banker of, which is interesting. And again, I think it reflects um, a very rational concern about the excesses of financial excesses and excesses of debt that we have in the system today. And the idea that uh, the path we're on is in some way unsustainable. If you look at uh, most of the other central banks, especially those that haven't been acquirers of, uh, of gold over the last decade, um, they tend to never talk about it. And to the extent they do talk about it, they'll say something similar to what Greenspan said in the late 90s, which is if it goes up, we'll lease more and we'll make sure that there's not a disruption in the market. So, um, you know, it's pretty clear that they're uh, not gold friendly or are not eager to see their monetary monopolies eroded in any way by gold. So I don't think there's nothing I don't think particularly surprising there in terms of how central banks and governments have behaved. I will say that the um, rewriting uh, the amendments to some of the silver ETFs uh, this last spring uh, was really surprising. Uh, and the idea that anybody would invest in an ETF that uh, highlighted the risk of the underlying metal that they're buying as an ETF going up as a, as a potential problem, um, I think speaks some to some of the maybe institutional tensions that exist in that market. Silver is obviously very different just because it's a metal that's consumed and the supplies are much scarcer and it will be much more volatile. Um, but I thought those... Uh, Amendments, especially the amendment to the the uh, Aberdeen uh, ETF prospectus, was surprising. What, what was surprisingly the honest? <laughs> what, what was the? What can you just? What was the amendment? Uh, it it uh, and I won't. I don't have it in front of me, so it's not verbatim. Just, in, just in rough terms. Something to the extent that if, in fact, we continue to get inflows into the fund and. Uh, we were to continue to use those inflows to purchase physical silver, this may result in a much higher silver price and may create disruptions in the market. And therefore, we may not be able to do that or at least not buy that silver in physical form, something along those lines. And you're thinking, well, gosh, you know, part of the reason why people are buying silver ETFs these days is because they realize that, in fact, there seems to be something of a supply constraint. And the whole idea that you would actually have a dollar pound or whatever go into the uh, silver ETF and that would not be properly translated into the actual physical ownership of silver is a surprising admission. Um, so uh, I don't know, that's not really the realm of conspiracy theory because they went went ahead and just amended the prospectus. So it doesn't leave much to the imagination, but it is kind of uh, why we, you know, we don't own either physical gold or silver today, but when we did, we didn't own it through the ETFs. And um, um, I just, it's not clear to me if you don't want the jurisdictional risk, you don't want all the risks associated with financial markets, why you would choose to own monetary metals through the, through the intermediation of the stock market, I think is not uh, particularly sound logic. I guess they're concerned about some sort of squeeze. Maybe, maybe some big fund could come in and invest into their ETF, forcing them to then go into the market and squeeze it that way rather than squeezing it directly. 
you could you go and buy you know lumber i suppose that makes there's less lumber uh, available i presume that might be part of the reason why people are um, you know building inventories of lumber i mean that's the that's just the reality of the way um uh, markets work and these are not securities obviously the underlying metals are not securities so um so so yeah that's just the state that's where we are today one central bank we didn't discuss which i think is an, an interesting one it was the swiss national bank i think sold almost all of its gold holdings or perhaps all of its gold holdings and then uh there was an outcry in switzerland and they held a referendum to see whether they should force the central bank to buy back a great portion of its gold and the referendum uh, didn't succeed and so they were able to keep on doing what they had been doing but do you have any do you have any thoughts on on why they did that or what 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 happened there I, so I don't believe that uh, over the last two decades um, the Swiss National Bank has been selling its gold I think they were part of the uh, Washington agreement back in 2019, which I think had 16 signatories. So um, I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure they were not uh, one of the signatories that was actually um, selling gold over the last uh, 20 years. And they do have pretty substantial um, uh, gold reserves, which I think they do continue to hold. I think the, um, um, you know, the last central bank to really aggressively uh, sell gold um, was Great Britain uh, back under Gordon Brown. This was in the, in the late 90s, and they engineered a series of auctions that cost uh, the government and the British people in billions of dollars because of the very low price that they were able to achieve uh, as part of those sales. And then really, I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, since 2008, central banks have um, not exactly uniformly, but to a large extent, been large acquirers of gold. And the very largest acquirers have been Russia and China, whose you know, exactly how they report how much they've acquired is not clear. Um, but I think each of those uh, now formally declares almost 2,000 tons of, of gold to their account, which is a huge change from where they were going back 15 or 20 years. I, I may be confused about that. When what's your what's your background, Sean? How do you come to be uh, interested in precious metals and uh, hedge funds? Well, let's see. I started in this business in uh, summer of '94 and uh, been here at Equinox Partners full time since 1995. And uh, we're better business value investors, and we're better business value investors in you know, a 25-year period where there's been some really significant cycles, but generally we've seen uh, financial assets uh, pricing ever, ever upwards. And we've seen stocks, and you certainly see that today, trading at um, valuations that are hard to reconcile with a, a, a value investing approach. And so what we've found is that there are there are niches, there are areas where uh, investors aren't for a variety of practical or ideological uh, reasons. And that by taking our better business value investing discipline and applying it in areas where most other investors aren't comfortable, aren't familiar, don't know, um, you know we've been able to generate um, good returns and, and take advantage of a lot of the inefficiencies out there um, and not get caught up in what I think is now at, you know, 
today, a, you know, very broad based, you know, financial mania, both in stocks and bonds, really across almost uh, the entirety of the developed world and, and, and a large fraction of the emerging world. There's a chart that does the rounds on Twitter every now and again, and, and probably more broadly, but it shows it could be the Dow or, or take, your, take your pick of whichever index you, you like, and they compare it to the price of gold or to, to commodities. And so it shows on occasion that um, you know the, the index gets very cheap in gold terms, in which case you should buy the index. The index gets very expensive in gold terms, in which case you should be in gold. Every time somebody posts that Somebody else points out that that's a chart crime. I've never been able to figure out what's exactly wrong with that chart. But do you have any view on the the usefulness of of an approach like that? Well, I think it's very useful. So, you know, when you when you look at that uh, uh, the version of that chart that uh, I most frequently see, you know, when the uh, when the when the Dow and an ounce of gold trade pretty similar to one another, that tends to be you know, where gold is topping out and financial assets are bottoming. And, uh, you know, right now we're at the very opposite extreme. And um, I think one of the questions we get, and we don't get it today, but we get in a, a bull market in gold and silver, and in particular gold and silver mining, is when, when do you sell? When do you know it's 1980? When do you know it's time to go do something else? And I think that chart is probably the best answer to that question is, right, the time when you no longer need to own gold and silver is when markets and investors have decided that other financial assets are are trash or not worth much, but they all have to own gold. And that's a good indication that it's time to go back and buy those better businesses that the market no longer likes. And I think if you'd done that over the last 40 or 50 years, you would have managed to take advantage of both some of the really significant uh, bull cycles, bull market cycles in commodities as well as equities and miss some of those very painful uh, bear markets. And I think that's something in 2021 that uh, investors, especially equity investors, are, are just too cavalier about, right? They're, the idea that you could be underwater for 14 years in a stock portfolio as people were going into the early 80s is just not, it's something maybe people know on paper, but I don't think they understand it emotionally. I don't think they understand what it's like to live through that. And I don't think they're behaving in a way to try to avoid that given where valuations are today. Well, you could have owned the indexes from 2000 through to 2013, I think, and you would have been underwater as well. There's recent recent examples of that as a strategy i like following activists into uh into positions and there's there's some activism in the gold sector do you, do you have any do you have any thoughts on on how you play it or or what you expect to happen so we're uh we're participants one of my colleagues is a board member on the uh shareholders gold council um which was started a number of years ago by uh paulson's funds and has a uh membership of between 10 and 20 different money managers. And um, it's a space that's not amenable to activism and private equity in general, just because it's capital intensive, it's cyclical. Um, there's uh, lots of reasons why it's not gonna attract um, mainstream activists. Um, that all said, uh, if you look at the success that they had with Detour, uh, going back two years and their ability to um, change that board, that I think um, 
exemplifies some of what's wrong with the industry, where you have insiders that are um, um, very locked in in their position, are are, uh, not well aligned with shareholders, um, and are not willing to really uh, consider um, meaningful offers for their company. And that's a real problem in terms of value creation. And the idea that there was receptivity amongst institutional investors to make that change going back two years ago, I think is a good sign for the industry. It's been, unfortunately, two years since we've had anything like that. And this proxy season is looking pretty uh, pretty meager in terms of uh, activist campaigns so far. But I do think that's something that needs to continue to happen in the space. And um, uh, to the extent that we we can, we're not activists, but where we can play a positive role, we we do in that space. Is that where you see the activism? It tends to be uh, governance focused rather than they have some ideas about improving the operations of the of the mind. It, it's it's more a capital allocation or uh, governance rather than operational. Hundred percent, right? No, there are not. It's not an issue of you know you could. You know, you could make this engineering decision better. That's right. not the problem we're having. The problem we're having are insiders that own very little to no stock in some cases. You even in the case of South Africa have companies that are now following the King 4 report, which is a governance report in South Africa that actively discourages um, board members from owning stock in their companies which um, on the idea that they have to reflect uh, the interest of all stakeholders, not just shareholders, which I think just goes to um, the heart of the problem that we're having as long-term shareholders uh, in gold and silver mining companies is we really need a partnership with uh, the insiders and in particularly uh, with the board. And if they don't have any economic interest or ownership of the company and they view themselves as some kind of uh, process-oriented you know, priesthood that sits there and just implements best practices, that is going to be enormously value destructive for the industry, and it's just not the way forward. And that kind of um, sense of what better, best governance is has unfortunately gained a lot of traction in the industry. And so I think there needs to be a lot more pushback from investors like ourselves and others in the space. Activist campaigns are just one part of that. You have a lot of other engagement uh, and uh, around um, the management circulars and around board formation that goes on all the time. And that needs to be, I think, really focused on this alignment issue and share ownership of, uh, of the directors in particular. You touched on it a little bit there, but you do have some unusual geopolitical risk with gold mining because the gold mines tend to be in, in areas that may have some political instability, some strife. How do you handle that as, uh, as an investor in these regions? I think it helps a lot to, you know, have been active and be familiar with these uh, jurisdictions over time and get a sense in terms of what the range of debate in the countries in which you're active are. Um, I don't think mining investors generally are expecting a um, um, a uh, uh, the government to to bend over backwards to help them. The governments are really there trying to maximize their their own economic interest in many cases. 
Um, but so long as they're behaving rationally and so long as they're adhering to the stability agreements and the rule of law, I think it does really create a framework where as an investor, you can support a 10 to 20 year investment on the idea that the economic parameters that you started with will be true throughout the life of that, of that mine. And governments that are constantly changing the rules or where there is a highly politicized judiciary or legal process that can expropriate or take or shut down assets um, really makes the, the, the mining business unworkable. So the, uh, the example that comes to mind most immediately for me is the Escobar mine in Guatemala, which is a incredibly high grade, low environmental impact, uh, well-built um, silver mine uh, that will, in production would account for about 10% of the Guatemalan government's tax receipts, that mine alone, and was shut down. Um, and it's been shut down for years, and it's been shut down by activists, and it's been, the activists have been aided and abetted by a very uh, uh, politicized judiciary in Guatemala. And that's the kind of thing that makes uh, jurisdiction uninvestable. Um, and it's, it, it basically makes that jurisdiction investable for you know, the Russians, the Chinese, but not for the Canadians and Australians, not for companies that are going to uh, uh, you know, follow best practices and you know, adhere to the laws of the countries in which they're operating. And, and it's, a real, uh, it's a real shame in watching the current president of Guatemala trying to work through that legal process to get that mine back up and running is, again, painful because you just see the extent to which the institutions and the um, administration of justice itself in that country has been corrupted. And that's something that is, that's where you can lose a lot of money in this space. And uh, it's really hard to find a way out once you've gone down that path, if you're one of those countries. Most countries don't do that because they understand the logic of maximizing their returns by incenting further investment into the, into the mining industry. It seems that after a very long period where we haven't seen much inflation, that uh, it really has come back to life. There's, it, if you dump a whole lot of money into the system and you constrict supply on one side, then you naturally are going to see some prices rise. I, I guess that the, the tension is always between folks who say it's transitory and folks who have uh, a view that that continuing money printing sort of it, it's sort of it's now going to be with us for an extended period of time. Do you do you have any thoughts? Well, we have I think a very um, a weak Fed chair. I think he was he was chosen uh, by President Trump uh, in large part because um, because of his disposition, and um, you know we didn't get John Taylor because he was too ideological and looked like he was going to act independently based on his model. We didn't get Kevin Warsh resigned under Bernanke under one of the initial bouts of QE. Obviously courageous, independent, um, and uh, even though fa in favor of, broadly speaking, the uh, easy money we've had uh, posed a risk in terms of actually maybe raising rates if we did see inflation. So what we have is we have a Fed chair who seems to be, have been captured by the Fed, captured by the administration, captured by the allure of easy money, who is sending all the wrong signals here at a time where we have rising prices. And then you combine that with a Congress that has an administration that has 
very little restraint in terms of the amount of money they want to spend um, or willing to spend. Uh, Republicans are rhetorically for smaller government in practice. That just hasn't been true. Certainly wasn't true under Trump. Um, and it doesn't look like there's much possibility of any real fiscal constraint coming out of out of D.C. And then you layer on top of that the economic rebound we're seeing today, the um, the actual rates of inflation now year over year that we're seeing, and then the likelihood of a of a new Fed chair uh, that we'll hear about later this year um, voted on um, next year that I think you know could be much more political and radical than even we have in in Powell, and so the setup seems horrible. I don't know if we're quite to the level of you know the early 70s and uh you know formally debasing the dollar and going off Bretton Woods if we quite have that set up um but we have a setup where the government's in charge of the economic cycle and we have a um i think a very imprudent um uh, uh fed chair so in that case in in those ways it is very similar to what we had in the early 70s and the the result of all of that money printing hopefully is some performance out of gold, but perhaps financial assets get uh, get beaten up through that process. Yeah, so a gold gold tends to do well in inflationary periods, but gold tends to do extraordinarily well in inflationary periods that aren't uh, a result of higher rates of growth. So if you have inflation that is a product of excessive government action and monetary debasement, that tends to be the environment where gold and silver do extraordinarily well. That's what you had in the 1970s. That's that you know, stagflationary environment where owning common equities is not the solution because there's inflation, but everything's not growing. And so we have um, money managers that have had you know, the last four or five uh, inflationary episodes we've had where we've gotten through 3% inflation have been driven by higher rates of growth. So the 05 through 08 period is a great example of that. Stocks are up a bunch. And so why not just own stocks instead of bonds if you think there's higher rates of inflation? But that's just not the kind of inflation that we're seeing today. We're not seeing inflation that's driven by uh, strong fundamental growth. We're seeing inflation that's driven by excessive government action and excessively easy monetary policy. And that is not a good recipe for common stocks. It's a good recipe for gold and gold and silver mining. Well, we're coming up on time. If folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing, how do you suggest that they do that? Mm, they can email me at sfiler at equinoxpartners.com. Um, and there's a, if you go to Equinox Partners and search it, you can find our contact details um, on the internet. Sean Filer, Equinox Partners, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.